Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, some things, some things in life can be so destructive, can be so destructive no matter how long they've been buried. At least uh, that is what some residents of a village in Ukraine found out at one point some time ago. Uh, the Associated Press carried a story a while back about this interesting Ukrainian village for tells a story of this one woman. For 43 years, Zenaida Branastova had been telling people there was a World War II bomb buried under her bed. story began back in 1941 when the German army advanced toward the Ukrainian city of Bernanks. And one night at the very start of the war, this woman was sitting by the window and sewing on her machine. According to this news report, suddenly a noise was heard and a whistling close by. She got up and in the following moment was struck by a blast of wind. And when she came to, the sewing machine was gone and there was a hole in the floor as well as in the ceiling. Zenaida couldn't get, she couldn't get any of the officials to check out her story. So she just moved her bed over the hole and lived with it. For the next 40 years. Finally, the woman's problem was uncovered. As phone cable was being laid in the area, demolition experts were called in to probe for buried explosives. And they sort of mockingly asked her, where's your bomb, Grandma? And and they said, no doubt it's under your bed. And she said, yeah, it's under my bed. And sure enough, There they found a 500-pound bomb. And after evacuating 2,000 people from the surrounding buildings, the bomb squad detonated the bomb. So according to the report, the grandmother, freed of her bomb, would soon receive a new apartment. Now, friends, I, I tell that story because many people spiritually live like that grandmother. They live with a bomb under the bed. They live with a terrible secret or a great hurt or seething anger or a simmering bitterness in their heart that lays there for years while everyone else goes on with their lives around them and doing about their business. No one is safe there until it is removed, however. Merciless hearts bury a bitterness that is spiritually dangerous. Bitter, resentful, envious hearts that cannot extend mercy to others show that they never actually received and experienced the mercy of God themselves. So friends, if you suffer from bitterness and resentment, if you're ever tempted to bury rage until it explodes, if you're a ticking time bomb of malice, then Jesus' words to you today ought to disarm your heart before your bitterness explodes. The preaching of Jesus that we all need to hear, all of us, to disarm our sinful hearts is found here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, as we continue on to read these Beatitudes as they are known here. And Jesus continues his preaching in the Sermon on the Mount with these words, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
Now, friends, I think a, a main idea, the thing I want you to walk away with to understand these words and apply to your life today is this. Battle bitterness and love mercy by first receiving God's mercy. I think all of us need to hear this wherever you're at today. If you feel like bitterness and malice are in your heart or whether you feel like this is something you are is more in the rearview mirror, all of us need to know to battle bitterness and love mercy you must first receive God's mercy. I want to look at that two main points, two main things of understanding this parable. The first is, is simply this. What is mercy? When Jesus talks about it here, Blessed are the merciful. Who are the merciful? Because when we think of mercy, we often think of mercy alongside some other things like kindness and gentleness and compassion. And these things all work together. They're kind of like little streams that all flow into one larger stream. But they are different in some ways. So mercy is like kindness, but it is different. Kindness would be me kind of calling you to see how you're doing when you're well. But mercy would be me visiting you in the hospital and bringing your food when you're laid up. Mercy is also different from grace. It's related to grace, but there is a difference. Grace, as one person said, is especially concerned with people in their sins, whereas mercy is more concerned with people in their misery and in their suffering. But mercy is also often thought of in terms of compassion, working with compassion as well. And compassion is an awareness of, a sympathy for someone's suffering. Compassion is, in the biblical sense, something you feel in the depths of your being for someone, literally in your bowels. And so when you see somebody suffering, it's stirring you, stirring you up with almost an anxiety to want to do something. And yet, mercy is also slightly different from compassion. Mercy, as someone put it, is compassion in action. Mercy is the fruit of compassion. It's really the fruit of all these things, I think, working together. Mercy is action fruit of compassion, kindness, and grace going together. But mercy is also compassionate action taken by someone in power. Power to do something for someone, power to judge someone, power to protect someone, power to, by the strong taken for the weak, or power from the rich to the poor, the insider toward the outsider, by those who have towards those who have not. This also is getting at what mercy is. If you look up mercy in the in the dictionary, the definition goes something like this. Compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. But let me give it to you in my own simple words. Mercy is giving compassion or help to someone who does not otherwise deserve it. I mean, compassion or help to someone who does not otherwise deserve it. Mercy is usually not always shown by someone in authority or over someone else or shown by someone who's been wronged towards someone who has wronged them. It's often how it goes. But it's about seeing someone in their distress, seeing someone in their anxiety and their suffering and doing something to relieve it. That's what mercy is. 
So how can you ask yourself if you're a merciful person or to be merciful when someone is offending you or when someone has offended you? What does that look like? The way to know that you're merciful is to check your heart when someone has offended you. When someone has offended you, are you going to, for example, exact as much punishment on that person as you possibly can when they go to you and plead for mercy? Or do you say that this person is in the wrong and I'm going to make them suffer as much as possible until I feel better about it? Or does your heart jump at the chance to get back at them when they come pleading to you for your forgiveness? You check your heart to see if you hold on to bitterness as long as you can until it makes you sick to your stomach. If that's what your heart is doing to you when someone comes and asks for forgiveness and mercy, it shows that you have been burying bitterness in your heart. And that you're not displaying a merciful spirit. That's a vindictive uh, spirit. Well, let me illustrate in a few ways what true mercy looks like. The story has been told of a a mother who sought from Napoleon the pardon of her son. And the emperor said it was this man's second offense and justice demanded his death. The mother said, I don't ask for justice. I plead for mercy. But the emperor said he does not deserve mercy. And sir, cried the mother, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask. Well then, said the emperor, I will show mercy. And her son was saved. That's a picture of mercy. The compassion shown to someone who's in distress, who doesn't deserve it. But mercy can also be shown in compassion to others to just to relieve their pain and suffering that you see them experiencing. So one of the greatest illustrations of showing mercy is in the parable that we read earlier, the Good Samaritan. You know, in Jesus' parable there, we see that unlike the priest who, and the Levite who saw the man robbed and beaten and on the side of the road, they might have felt pity, or they might have felt something in their heart for that man, but they didn't, they didn't show mercy. They didn't do anything to actually help the man. They didn't bind his wounds. The Samaritan came along and saw the man in need and did something about it by binding his wounds and by taking care of him. That's what mercy looks like, as Jesus himself says. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. That's one of the greatest illustrations in the Bible that we can find. But, of course, the greatest demonstration of mercy is in Jesus Christ himself. Like God the Father sent his own son, his only son, to take the form of a man to help weak and needy sinners, all of whom God the Father has given to him. This is the greatest act of mercy. Because we are all guilty sinners, we're all criminals. You and I stand condemned for our sin. You and I are helpless and dying, so to speak. You can't save yourself. I can't save myself. You're spiritually weak, spiritually bankrupt, spiritually broken, spiritually needy and poor. And yet this is precisely what moves God to act in his being. 
that he sees something in us and he does something about it. He doesn't just have some pity and not do anything. He's stirred in his bowels, so to speak, with compassion. And then he acts on it by sending his own son to save us in our, in our distress. God shows compassion and help to the needy, to those who don't deserve it, us. And he does it by sending his own son to die in your place, in the place of sinners. Jesus is a strong one who comes and dies in the place of the weak. Jesus is the rich one who dies in the place of the poor. Jesus is the righteous one who dies in the place of the unrighteous. It's because of this that Jesus is mercy. And because of his atoning sacrifice, that way of mercy to God is opened up towards all sinners. We can, as the author to Hebrews says, we can approach his throne of grace for mercy in a time of need. So this is what we must understand about mercy. This act of compassion to people who are in need, even to people who don't deserve it, by someone who has the power to give it. This is what Christ has done for us. But now, what is this promise that Jesus says here in this, in this beatitude? You know, notice this. Jesus says here in this beatitude that the uh, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I think this might be one of the most misunderstood Beatitudes. Because when you read that, you think, well, does Jesus mean here that only those who show mercy will then be given mercy by God? Or does Jesus mean, if I don't show mercy towards someone else, then God will never show me mercy? Does Jesus mean if you withhold mercy, then God will withhold his mercy? This isn't the only place, actually, in Jesus' teaching in Matthew where this type of lesson he's teaching to us. In Matthew chapter 6, for example, he teaches us how to pray. And you remember in the Lord's Prayer, one of the requests that we pray, as Jesus taught, is that he would forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Is Jesus teaching us there that God only forgives if we first forgive others? That if I don't first forgive others, then God will not forgive me? Is that what Jesus is saying? Or if you think of Matthew chapter 18, Jesus teaches a similar type of lesson. There in Matthew chapter 18 is a different parable. You remember the parable of the unforgiving servant. In that parable, Jesus tells a story, right, of a a master and a servant. And this servant owes his master the equivalent of millions or billions of dollars in today's money. And the servant knows that he cannot even begin to repay this debt. And so he goes to his master and he pleads with his master. He says, please forgive me of this debt. I have no way to begin to repay you. Would you have mercy on me? And what does the master do? He forgives the servant. And that servant, you remember, here's the twist of the parable. That servant, what does he do? He turns around to his fellow servant who owes him just a couple bucks, just a few quiet. And he begins to choke out that servant for the little bit of money that he owes him. Master hears about that. He hears that the first servant is so unforgiving. And so he says, fine, if that's how you're going to treat people after I've forgiven you, then I take back what I said and I'm going to throw you in prison until you can repay what you owe me. 
And Jesus summarizes that parable by saying, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. So again, the question is, what is Jesus saying? If you only forgive first, then God will forgive you after that? That's how some people read these passages. They say, see, Jesus is saying that if you forgive others, only then will God forgive you. Some people read this and say, if you don't show mercy, if you don't forgive anybody, full stop, then you can't be saved. They might even go on to say, your salvation depends on you showing mercy and forgiveness. But what I want to clarify for you today is that's not at all what Jesus is saying, actually. That's not Jesus' teaching. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, if salvation and God's mercy was based on my ability, if it's based on your ability to forgive and show mercy to other people, then none of us would be saved because none of us can meet that standard. None of us can be perfectly forgiving and merciful. None of us could be perfectly merciful and forgiving to the point where it would earn us salvation. It's an impossibly high goal. None of us can do that. That's why we know this is one reason Jesus is not teaching mercy by me first showing mercy to others. But second, this kind of system, this kind of idea of earning God's mercy first would completely evacuate the gospel. Yeah, we must never, ever make our own acts of mercy, our own good works, the basis of our salvation, the basis of God's mercy towards us. The gospel is not earn God's favor first by doing good works. The gospel is not be saved by your works. The gospel is, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God so that no one may boast. As the gospel is, God graciously forgives you, not because of your own works, not because of anything you've done, but because simply of his mercy and love shown to you in Jesus Christ. If salvation is based on your efforts or my efforts, then you see it's not a gift. It's not a work of God completely. And we would be robbing him of his glory for ourselves. So Jesus is not teaching here salvation in any sense by our own works or forgiveness, our works as a our forgiveness as a basis of our works. What is he teaching here, and in Matthew 6 and 18, what he is teaching is, you are forgiven by God if you repent of your sin. You know you stand as an unrighteous sinner before a righteous judge. You know you deserve punishment. You can't save yourself on your own effort. And so you repent, and to repent means you throw yourself on God's mercy and his grace. And if you're forgiven by him, as he promises you are, if you go to him in repentance and faith, then it's entirely because of his love towards you. If that's you, if you've come to the end of yourself as a sinner, 
and you're overcome by gratitude of how God has shown you mercy, then how could you not turn around and show that mercy to other people? If you've been overcome by God's own forgiveness, how could you not then turn and show forgiveness to other people? Because you see that they're just as much of a sinner as you are. Your your mercy to others is not the means of your salvation, but it is a sign of your salvation. That's what Jesus is saying here. Someone who has truly known God's grace and mercy couldn't help but show it to others, even those who have offended you, especially those who have offended you. The converse is also true. Lack of mercy to others is a sign that perhaps you've never known God's mercy to begin with. That's what James 2 says. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Friends, if bitterness, if rage, if malice rule your heart, if you bury them down deep, roll a bed over them, pretend like they're not there, it's a sign, perhaps, that you never truly experienced the mercy of Christ to begin with. The promise of Jesus is this. Those who show mercy to others because of God's mercy to them will receive mercy from God on Judgment Day. What Jesus means in this beatitude is that those who are truly God's children by repentance and faith in Christ and have received his mercy will themselves be merciful and receive mercy in the end when Christ comes again. So I hope you can see, I hope you can appreciate how Jesus says here that receiving God's mercy really transforms somebody. Because you say, I was once lost, now I'm found. I was once a slave to sin, now I'm free. I was once blind, now I see. I was weak, I needed the strength of Christ to save me. Once you see yourself in that way, you can't help but see others and their sin and their, depre- and their distress. You can't help but see others as being weak and blind and poor and needy, and they need compassion as well. You will, in fact, feel anxious over their distress and suffering. And because you desire to show compassion and to help the needy to those who don't deserve it, you will do that because of their thanks for what Christ has done for you. As this mercy, this mercy is exemplified again in Jesus Christ. That Jesus didn't just see our misery and feel pity on us. He actually did something about it. Now, Jesus isn't like the Pharisees and the teachers of his day. Those men who held a lot of power, they saw a lot of people in their suffering and sins, but they didn't do anything to help them. They just loaded them with more and more burdens. Jesus sees people and has compassion on them. He does something about it. And his whole life is a mission of mercy. He's never bitter towards his enemies. He doesn't hold in resentment until it explodes in rage. He only displays righteous anger. Jesus had, just think of all the compassionate moments in his life from beginning to end. Jesus is compassionate towards those who hunger. He feeds them. Jesus is compassionate and shows mercy towards those who are blind. He heals their blindness. But Jesus is merciful even 
by raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. Jesus isn't just sympathetic to people's situations. He's heartbroken over people's need, especially their neediness and sin. In every instance of some needy and helpless suffering sinner crying out to Jesus in faith, Jesus has compassion on them. So friends, we need to understand that Jesus cares for those who are in desperate need. He cares for people who are trying to navigate this life in a world gone wrong. He cares about people who are crying out for help. He cares about people who are hurting and can't help themselves. And this is the kingdom life that he's calling us to in these Beatitudes. He's calling you as well as a Christian. If you call yourself a Christian, this is the sign that you belong in his kingdom, that you show mercy because you have been shown mercy yourself. If you're battling bitterness, if you're battling bitterness, Jesus can liberate you, liberate your heart from that rage. And let me give you just three simple ways as we come to a close on on how to do that. How to defuse that bomb of bitterness or anger that might be in your heart. And the first thing you need to do to grow in this fruit of the Spirit is to confess your sin. It's as simple as that, really. You need to understand just the, the depths of depravity from which God has saved you. If you can see your own sin and be disgusted by it, only then can you see the graciousness of God to save you from it and cleanse you of it and to be assured of his promise. He forgives your sin and he forgets it. He says he blots it out. He casts it behind his back. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove your transgressions from you. So you need to go to him. Start with confession of your sin and seek his forgiveness. But then secondly, to grow a merciful spirit, you also need to meditate on scripture passages that speak about God's own mercy. If you're wrestling with this sense of rage or bitterness in your heart, spend time chewing on God's word, passages that speak deeply about his mercy. Psalm 103, for example, that we'll sing in a moment, speaks richly of God's mercy, his compassion. Just sit and chew on that psalm sometime. Or Psalm 145 that we sang earlier also speaks very richly about God being compassionate and merciful. You can also go back and think again on Matthew 18, Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant. And think about he's a kind master towards you. He's forgiven an infinite debt of sin that you've built up to him. Or one of my favorites is Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, as it's often called. Many things that that parable teaches us, but it definitely teaches us that God is a merciful God when we go to him in our need. But finally, the key to diffusing bitterness in your heart is really to begin serving others. Once you've confessed your sin, you've fallen on God's grace and mercy, once you meditate on that and his word, the next go to serving others. Serving others when you don't feel like it, especially when you don't feel like it. 
don't wait to have the perfect heart of mercy. You go with the heart that he's given you by his grace, and you begin to serve others. This grows your capacity to love and show mercy even more. Friends, as we conclude, those who truly know and experience God's mercy in Jesus Christ will show mercy to others. And history is a proof of that. A historian, Rodney Stark, argues that there was one huge factor that helped to capture the attention of the ancient world about Christianity. It was Christianity's revolutionary emphasis on mercy. And what stunned people in the day of the early church was the compassion and mercy that Christians showed to people who didn't deserve it. The days of the early church, infanticide was common. Abortion was, uh, was common. Slavery was common. Women were treated as second-class humans. Much of the appreciation that we have for human life today is because of the Christian faith, because of the mercy that Jesus speaks of here. The early church seeing people in their need Uh, Early church, seeing people and their suffering and doing something about it. Rodney Stark says, In the midst of the squalor and misery and illness and anonymity of the ancient cities, Christianity provided an island of mercy and security, and it started with Jesus. My friends, if Jesus' teaching could change the hearts of people over 2,000 years ago, why can't he change your heart today? We need to hear and receive Jesus' own teaching on mercy too. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's ask God to help melt our hearts that we would receive that teaching and put it into practice. Would you please pray with me?